0: Uh, I You know, I really thought I had things together uh, when I got married, uh, but uh, I wish I would have known some uh, things before I got married, uh, like, you know, I had some principles and some ideas in my head of how it would work, and it didn't always turn out the way I thought. Uh, for example, okay, uh, it's kind of the beginning when, you know, maybe I said something wrong or maybe showed up late to something or did something that was just... Uh, Not very loving to Erin. I can share these stories, right? Erin's not here today. So, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, what I just, okay, I I need some forgiveness. So I got flowers for her, uh, and I made her dinner, and I listened well. Okay, it was amazing. I did those things, and it was amazing. She forgave me. You know, it was actually a good conversation. Things were going better because um, I did those things, and I, I started making. It was like an equation, right? It was like you know math, algebra. It's like, okay, flowers plus dinner plus learning, listening equals forgiveness. Okay, so simple equation, right? This is the crazy thing. I plugged in that equation again the next time, and it didn't work. <laughs> And then I started thinking, okay, maybe, um, you know, this is, I need the quadratic formula for this one. Maybe it's a nonlinear kind of equation. Maybe, you know, all these kind of things, uh, you know, and maybe my permutations were not right. And I would fudge it. I would try to figure it out. I, all these different times uh, when I did something wrong, ways to work it out. And it just seemed like no matter how much I tried, I couldn't find an equation that kept on working each time for forgiveness. So, the lesson today is this that women defy the laws of algebra. Okay, that's what I want to. No, okay, that's not the lesson for today. No, you would. When I say that, you think it doesn't work that way, Dan. You know, people aren't an equation. You just don't plug things in and you get an, a result from people. It doesn't work that way. It's more complex than that. And the thing is, today we are going to see also an equation. Judges has an equation. It's, it's a cycle of, of what Israel does, of, of sinning and then uh, being handed over to uh, other nations and then crying out to God, then God uh, raising up a judge and saving them. It's this cycle that they go through. And so here's what the thing is, is we think, okay, just plug in this cycle. It works the same way throughout the book of Judges. Because it happens over and over again. But here is the crazy thing. That Israel continues in this cycle, but God saves them in radically different ways each time. He gives radically different ways of salvation and different judges that He raises up. We just can't put God in an equation And the question I want to ask you guys this morning, the question I will pose to you as we go through this passage of Judges and we look at two different Judges that are radically different, even though the cycle is the same, is why do we have radically different types of Judges? What does it teach us about the nature of God? What does it teach us about salvation? So let's look in the Scripture together i am just kind of answer that question um, this morning. Again, Judges 3, 7 through 30. Please forgive me if I butcher some names, okay? This is a hard one, okay? I'm going to try the best I can, okay? Here we go. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, um, the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the land of Cushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan um, Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over cushan Rishathayim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited, till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they were delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. All strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. I pray that it would be instructive to us. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Crazy story, huh? Crazy story. I mean, come on, really? A church, this story? I mean, you're a church planner. Maybe you should do the five steps to a better marriage series. That might work out better. Or maybe seven ways to find peace at work. But Ehud and Judges? Really? Really? Well, I'm going to make two arguments to you. One is this, why we should preach this passage. First, is because the Bible is useful for our lives. The entire Bible, all of it. When Second Timothy says all of Scripture is instructive and useful for teaching, it's talking about this passage too, even the passage about youthhood. Second, I think Judges is very apropos for us and for our culture and where we live. Ehud is a book about living in a pluralist society. What do I mean by that? Well, Israel lived among different gods. It lived among different nations. It lived among people that said it's okay to hold varying beliefs at the same time. Whatever God works for you and helps you, it's okay to believe in that God along with Yahweh, Lord, which is mentioned here. Those things are not contradictory. There's no tension there. You can have all these beliefs together. It's what we call pluralism. And I think we live in a culture like that today. A culture that says, whatever is good for you, whatever works for you, Whatever is going to get your family going, whatever is going to get you going in your career, whatever belief system it is, whether it's Eastern meditation, whether it's a person that's a self-help person that tries as hard as he can to work in his, his job, whatever whatever self-help teacher it is, whatever works, it's okay. And you can hold these different beliefs. You can be a Christian and believe those things too. It's okay. Pluralism. And we're going to see this, that that belief, that view, does not work for Israel in this passage in Judges. And I'll even say, I don't think it even works for us today. Okay? You might be a pluralist. It's okay. I'm glad you're here. I hope that I can answer maybe questions and objections that you might have. Um, I have many people that come to me with that belief. And I... I think this is a place where we can process that. So I hope we can do that together this morning. Great. So, why we preach those books. There's two reasons there. Next, I want to look at this. This story of Othniel is a cycle that we're going to see six times through the book of Judges. Here in just these few verses about the story of the judge, Othniel... We see the cycle that continues throughout the book of Judges. It's repeated again, like I said, six times. So let's look at the cycle that happens. What is the first step in the cycle? Scan. look at verse 7. Again, you're going to see this is repeated, this sentence. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals, and the Ashura. So, what happens here? The first cycle, they do evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because they forget. The word "forget" here in the Hebrew is sakah. It's good that we look at this Hebrew word. Not so I look smart and looks like I'm actually using my Hebrew that I spent lots of money on learning in seminary. No, it's not why I do it. It's because. If we look at this word in the Hebrew, it gives a fuller meaning than we would see in the English. It's not just forgetting me don't remember." It's the idea of disregarding or not taking into account. Let me un- unpack a little bit. Um, I'll pick on John and Cindy this morning. So let's say John, is kind of the way he loves Cindy is doing the dishes you know, and, uh, but John has decided to take a break from doing the dishes, okay? He's not going to do that, okay? Does that mean that John has forgotten that he's married? No. It doesn't mean he's forgotten that he's married, but it does mean this. He has disregarded the promises that he has made to Cindy, that I'm going to love her and serve her and help her. He's disregarded the reality that he is married to her. Okay? Does that make sense? He's not taking into account the reality of what it means to be married to Cindy. Now, this is an idea that uh, Jonathan Edwards plays out a lot in his writings in the 18th century, and I think it's a reality that speaks to us in Wisconsin. In a place... Like northeastern Wisconsin, where almost everyone says that they're a Christian, and they know the stories of Jesus, they know the stories of his death and resurrection, they know all these things, but still, does that mean they still do evil? We still have issues, we still have problems, we still don't go to church, all these kind of things that happen in northeastern Wisconsin. Does that mean that these people have forgotten? That lessons that they were taught and known going to Sunday school and things like that? No. What I think it is, is that they have disregarded and not taken into account the reality of what it means that Jesus was real. That he did die. That he did raise from the dead. Let me play it out a little bit. Why do people lie? Why do I lie? I lie because, there's many reasons I lie, but one reason I lie is because um, if I told the truth, it might go bad for me. <laughs> so if I hide, then I'll be okay. If I put an image in front, then I'll be okay. Because if people really know the truth, then it would go bad for me. But the thing is, what I'm doing when I'm lying Is that I'm not acknowledging or I'm disregarding who Jesus is. Here, Jesus says to me, I care about you. You're my son. I will protect you. I'll be there for you. I will be your warrior in front of you. That is what he says. That is the truth. But when I lie, I do not believe that truth. I am forgetting what Jesus has really done. Does that make sense? I want to make sure I'm making sense. Okay. So, the idea of forgetting here for Israel is not forgetting Yahweh and what He's done. It's not acknowledging and living in to the reality of who He is. Okay? That's the first step of the cycle. Let's move on to the second step. What happens next when they do evil and they forget? The Lord hands them over or Gives them over or sells them to these other nations. These other nations that rise up and oppress the Israelites. This is a message that's throughout the Bible. I think it's specifically in the book of Romans, Romans 1. It talks about um, what God does when people go into sin, into evil. He says he gives them up to their own devices. You know, we, a lot of the time, ideas and thoughts of how God punishes us, and we think, oh, he brings the smoting, the, you know, the fire from heaven, all those kind of things. I think there are instances of that, but I think the majority of instances of how God punishes people is this. He lets them live the way that they want to live by their own devices. Here you see this. God is saying, don't... Don't go into these other lands. Don't believe in their gods. Don't do this, because if you do that, it will, it will bring problems of, among you. And what happens is, finally, God says, I will remove my grace and my mercy from you. I will let you go where you want to go in believing in these other gods. And because you do, they are going to oppress you. And this is what happens. So if you pursue this, you pursue that, it will result in X and Y and Z. I truly believe the only reason we're not... I mean, what do we really deserve? (laughs) What do all of us really deserve? We all deserve a greater punishment than just being handed over by enemies or consequences for sin in our lives. We deserve death. But God... Gives us mercy and grace. The only way that we live is because of His gr- mercy and His grace. And when He removes that mercy and grace to any of society, whether you're in the church or now, and we're left to our own devices, what results in it? Oppression, slavery, all these kind of things. So that's second. He our the punishment to others. Okay. Third, what's the next thing that happens in this cycle? The people cry out. I think this is fitting too. We're going to continue to see this throughout Judges. It does not, this word cry out does not mean repentance. They do not repent and turn 180 and say, God, you were right, we were wrong, we will not do this anymore. No, that is not the word that's being used here. Crying out is this. They are saying, we are in trouble. We are in need. And even in just crying out like that, God comes and forgives them. I think it's fitting for this. Many people think the only way that God will come to people and save them and rescue them is that they make that repentance statement. They make those kind of lines, I'm going to say this or that, God, I'm wrong, I'm going to turn 180, boom. No. I think you see in this passage of Judges that God even gives grace and mercy to people that don't even say that. I've seen that time and time again with some people. I've been with people that have had devastation because of the sin that they've lived in and the things that they've gone through in their life. And they said, I, don't, I can't do this anymore. I am in trouble. I am in danger. And they just say that to God. And God gives them grace, even in the midst of that. And then in the kindness that God gives them and they're crying out about their circumstances, they then see... God's mercy and grace and they come to a further repentance to God. The Israelites are just crying out here and saying I am in trouble. And God even gives grace to them in the midst of that. Okay. I want to go through that cycle with you guys, okay? Because we're going to see this continually through the book of Judges. So I think it's important that we explain it. And um, I think it's important that we explain it too because you, we repeat a lot of things in worship. I don't know if you know this, but we always have a call to worship, right? And then we have a confession of sin, and then we have words of grace. Why do we do that every week? Why do we continue that cycle every week? Because that is the cycle that is being mentioned right here in Judges. One, we acknowledge who God is, because sometimes we forget. Then we come to Him in forgiveness. Man, our life's a mess. We come to Him for confession of sin. And then God comes to us in grace, in the assurance of pardon. We repeat that cycle continuously. Forgetting, then acknowledging who God is, confessing who we are, and then going back to understanding the grace that he has given us. It's a continual cycle in life. Okay. Further on, to Oath uh, I have a question. How many of you guys um, had heard a story about Samson... Growing up in Sunday school or maybe in society, or in my stories about Samson. Okay, great. How many of you guys, growing up, um, had a Sunday school lesson in, on O'Neill? Anyone? Come on, people! No O'Neill studies growing up for Sunday school? This is what's crazy. I mean, who would you rather have your son be like or a young man turn out like? O'Neill or Samson? Have any of you guys really read about Samson? We're going to get to him a little bit later. He is messed up. Now, he's just not messed up. He is seriously messed up. And this is what happens in judges. The judges get worse and worse and worse. It just degenerates as we go on through the judges. And so we start with those Neal, who actually is the best judge. What Sunday school lessons should we really be teaching your kids? O'Neill lessons. Not Samson lessons. I mean, look how good... I'm, I'm, I'm yelling now, sorry. But I'm, just, I'm excited about how good O'Neill is. How good is he? How good is he? He goes against this guy, Kushan Rishathayim. And Rishathayim, do you know what that word means? It means double wickedness. Kushan of double wickedness. Some scholars, and maybe believe, he was the worst oppressor of Israel throughout Judges. Why did they say that? Because he actually traveled the furthest. He came the furthest from Mesopotamia all the way down to Judah. So his power, his fingers of influence, was able to even go all the way down to Judah. And how bad was he? He was double wickedness bad, right? And then Othniel was able to war against him. To save from him. And how good is O'Neill? Well, first of all, is there any moral ambiguity with O'Neill? No. Are there any wicked tricks that he does or deception or anything like that in his character? No. Nothing is that with that, this character. He is doing the cycle in the right way. He's listening to God, God is raising him up, the Lord is working through him to save. I think the principle I want to get here is it's better to be faithful than to be popular. You know, it's better to be faithful than to be popular. You know, Samson gets all the press. O'Neill doesn't. But that's a good thing because it's better to be faithful. You know, I... I uh, went to go see the, the Steve Jobs movie and read some of his biography about Steve Jobs. Um, any of you guys Apple Steve Jobs fans? Maybe. Uh, yeah, you know, just some Apple people. get okay. You know, Steve Jobs was popular, was he not? He was popular. I mean, when he died, people, like, grieved. I mean, yes, his family grieved, of course, but other people, like, didn't even know him or never met him in his life. Oh, my word. It's the passing of a God, basically. He was a popular guy that did amazing things, but if you, I encourage you, read his biography or um, the biopic movie, um, "Jobs," Steve Jobs was messed up. He was really messed up. His desire to be popular and to be famous, it drove him in some pretty crazy ways. One, he left his girlfriend and his daughter, just abandoned them, said, I have nothing, I want nothing to do with you because you're going to hold me back from um, getting this company off the ground. More than that, he would run over people at work, swearing at them, firing them on the spot if they did not do what he wanted them to do. His best friend, his partner in starting Apple, was. He even abandoned him. He even left him. He even alienated him. In his desire to be successful. In all his popularity. In all his fame. In all his saying, Man, I would love to be that guy to have that multi-million dollar mansion. To create the iPhone. To be known. If you really know him and see him it's better to be faithful than to be popular. I'm going to pick out Steve Jobs. Why don't I pick up pastors? I'll pick up pastors, okay? Because, you know, it's, I'm going to rant just for a little bit, okay? So just go with my rant, okay? When, you know, Bill and I, Bill probably goes to these pastoral conferences. You go to the pastor conferences, and the ones that speak at the pastor conferences are the ones that are popular and have arrived. Big churches, tons of books, yada, yada, yada. And here's what I hear many times from these pastors. You know, you get these sessions where they, you know, they're talking. A common theme that these pastors say is, you know, as successful as my ministry was, I really should have spent more time with my family in those years, and I could have done something, things differently then. This is what they say, and they talk about how they messed up and all these kind of things. This is my rant. You know who I want at those conferences speaking? Do you know what the conferences should really bring? I want the guy that has a church of 80 people that's faithfully been there for 20 years, ministering and loving his people. That's written no book, that has no popularity, that doesn't have to say, I wish I spent time with my family, because he did... Because he was faithful? See, that guy doesn't get to speak at the conferences, does he? That's the guy that we don't see. That's another guy, people, that we want to be, oh, I want to be like that guy. We don't say that, do we? Because they're not seen in our own workplaces, in our lives, in the media, wherever it might be, they are not shown. But the truth is, it's better be faithful than be popular because we see what happens many, many times with the people that are popular. How about you? Do you have to prove something? <laughs> in your, own, I don't think anyone's trying to strive to be American Idol here. Anyone? Maybe I don't know, but but we do it in our own way, don't we? Man, I got to prove something to my family. So I've got to be successful in my job. I've got to show people back home that I'm no longer a screw-up like I was in high school. So I want to show them that I have a put-together family. You know what? I'm going to show all oh my goodness on Facebook, the smiling pictures of my family, all the fun things I do, because I don't want people to really see that i got some major issues going on. We live in an image culture, and it's getting worse. I don't want to rant as a pastor, oh yeah, image culture, yeah. but it's, it, it's getting worse. That we have to show people that we're okay. That we've arrived. That we've made it. O'Neill is one that we should look to. That's Samson, a small character that was faithful and good. You know what? Uh, where did the power come from to think that way? I think it comes because God sets it up that way. Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth, he wasn't from Jerusalem or somewhere popular. He was from a town that people thought was podunk. <laughs> was where no one really good came from. He wasn't after the crowds either. He didn't really care for the crowds coming after Him. He was saying, no. God said, what comes to earth, how I will show my way, is through faithfulness and weakness. In 1 Corinthians, God says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus came, not as a popular figure, but one that was faithful. If our God, ourself, came in that way, should we not follow in that footsteps? Well, let's move on to Ehud. Here's a story that was written by a second to fourth grade boy. Okay, right? That's who the target audience is too, right, you know? Many commentators through the years have tried to spiritualize this story. The dagger is the sword of the spirit. You know, it's, uh, it's the word of God piercing us. It's not a real sword. The NIV even takes out the word dung because it could be offensive. But good thing we got the ESV, right? Isn't it right, you no? We got dung in there. I mean, this is a crazy story. And I, I think we have to put ourselves in um, these people from Judah, these people from Ephraim, these people from Israel as they hear this story. They laughed, and we can laugh too. Why would they have laughed? They would have laughed because they've been oppressed by this guy for 18 years. By Eglon. And even worse, you know what Eglon's done? He's gone to one of the prettiest cities, the city of Palms, Jericho, which would have been an oasis kind of town. And what has he done? He has sat there and put up his rule. He's basically created a summer cabin away from his capital city and planted his summer cabin in the middle of Israel. And even worse, he's gotten fat. You know, he's very fat. You know, He's a picture of his gluttony and him using the tributes that the Israelites are bringing to have it in their face. And this is where the story gets good for the Israelites. They're like, oh, very fat man. You better believe it. We know that. And even better, this kind of irony that, um, you know, Ehud says, I got something for you from God. Right? And these people are laughing. Yeah, he does. He's got something for him. And then, the idea of this dagger going into him and the fat swallowing in the dagger and him leaving it in and then the dung coming out. I mean, people are laughing this and they're laughing even more because what happens? The guards come and they, like, oh, he's, it smells bad. He's probably relieving himself, right? Until they get embarrassed. They're like, oh, wow, this smell isn't going away. And they come in. If you're an Israelite, you are laughing. You're saying, man, that is crazy how God would work in such a way. It's like the Godfather movies, right, you know, or Departed or something like that. It's a crazy story. And if you were like me, and you maybe, you know, only read this in passing and not really looked at how crazy this story is of um a sword being swallowed into a man's fat and dung and all these kind of crazy things. You'd be like, what is this doing here? Especially after Oath I mean, Oath was clean cut. Fine, and now we get this story of Ehud that is, sometimes it seems deceptive and crazy and a, a way of salvation that just seems like, man, what is going on? So I want to go back to my question for you. Why two separate, contrasting stories of judges in God's salvation? Please hear me here, okay? This story of Ehud and the contrast of how God saves through different judges, what it does is this. It shatters the heart of Of idolatry. It shatters the heart of idolatry. And the whole idea that idolatry is what can save us and what will be okay. What did idolatry do? Idolatry said this. If you put in this to the temple or to buying an idol or to praying this kind of days, or doing these kind of specific things, if you do those things to the idol, you will get this in return. Okay? You do X, you get Y in return. That's the way idolatry works. If I put energy and time into my job, if I work hard in this, if I put all myself into this, I will get this result. If I do that in any area of my life, if I put this, I will get benefits from it. And what is Yahweh saying to that idea? That is crap. That is not right. That is not the way I work. And that's the way you think I work. You think I work the same way. You think if you give your time, you give your energy you put in this for me, I will give you this result that you want. (laughs) If you worship me this way, if you do this for me, I will give you what you want in this way. And God is saying, that is not true. Please hear this. David Jackman, he's a famous scholar. He says this about this way of idolatry and what God is trying to show. God teaches His rebellious people that their total dependence on his sovereignty and power, he teaches them total dependence on his sovereignty and power, by breaking out of their predictable boxes to use methods and ideas and thoughts and ways of salvation they could never have imagined. What God is saying is this to these people, I work in ways that you could never have thought of. I will deliver you in ways that you could not think. I will work in the people of Israel, in my way, in my sovereignty, in a plan and a path that is greater than you could ever thought of or you could have imagined. Your idea that if you put X and Y into an idol and you'll get this result is not true. It is not true with me. Because the truth is, I will give you what you do not think want but what you need and i will show that to you for the way i raise up people that are messed up and crazy and in different kinds of stories to show my salvation is greater than any box that you can put in and on life how many of you did your life turn out as you expected how are you here. you Did your life turn out as you expected? Oh, come on, I want someone to go, yep, got exactly what I wanted. Thank you, thank you. I, I wanted someone to say that, yes. Exactly how I expected. Um, I was um, supposed to have a boy and a girl. I was supposed to be in a new urban environment in Colorado planning a church, and I should have had 500 people by now. And uh, I was supposed to be leading this church planting movement in Colorado because that's what I was supposed to be doing. And I got mad at God. Why did you not do it that way? Why did my life not turn out the way that I wanted it to turn out? What were you doing? Here I'm in Wisconsin planting a church in Appleton. God, what are you doing? Let me tell you something. God knew better than I did. The guy that I was supposed to plant the church through, he left the ministry because of moral failure, and if I would have stuck with it, I would have been a mess. I left that opportunity to go there to be uh, to another church where I learned from a guy that gave me the real equipping that I needed to really plant a church out of the right heart. I came to Wisconsin, which I didn't think I would come back, and God has shown me day in, day out, through my wife and through my kids. My wife says to me, I am finally home. I finally find a place that I love and I care about. Only God knew that. And I said, oh, I know what's best. I'll put you in a box. I'll do it my way. This building, okay, God continues to I had my plans of where we were going to meet as a church. Okay, it was not here. Okay? It was many different places. I looked at all these other places in town that we should have met. But God and Bill, a lot of people, said, just keep on praying. God has what's best. And (laughs) true... Through Greta, I'm thankful for Greta, we came to this place. The girl says, I could not have picked a better place. The price, the location, I think we would have been in serious trouble if we went to the other places that I was looking at. We would have been in serious trouble. God knew what was best. When we expect God to work in a certain way, we are not treating him as God. God is the one that can take you where you are and use you for a purpose and for a reason. He works in different ways. He works through dung and a foot-long sword, a dagger through a man, through a messed up and deceptive evil to save his people. If he can do that, can he work through you? Judges, as we're going to see, we're going to keep on reading, he is going to use people that are messed up, people that uh, have suspect backgrounds, people that don't deserve to be in leadership, we would think, from the outset. He uses them time and time again to show us this. I will work in my way, in my time, in how I want to, to show you the power does not come from you, or from how good leadership is you think is but it comes from my power and my abilities and my salvation. Is there any greater illustration to that than the cross? Is there any greater illustration? That's salvation? That's the rescue to our world? That God Himself would die a most horrible death of shame and torture, that is salvation to this world? That will usher in a new kingdom and change how this world acts? You better believe it. Because God says, I will take the foolishness of this world to show my power and my strength, and I will do the same in your life. I will take the foolishness that you see and how your life has turned out or what you have done or where you might be to show that the one who will have power and glory is me. Because I know what is best. Because when we look at the cross, we see God can bring salvation in amazing ways. Outside of our expectations. And He can do it where you are. Wherever you might be, whoever you are, whatever story it is. That is the good news of the gospel. That he takes the foolishness things of the world and he turns them upside down to show that is the way of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a story like Ehud To show us that you move in ways that we could never have imagined. And God, I pray that we would see that in our lives. God, you can take us wherever we might be right now and you can do that. You can show the power of your salvation. I pray for people this morning that might feel like their life has no salvation. There is no redemption in where they're going. God, prove them wrong. Show them that they are wrong through your cross and through this story. Pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.